Would you join me for the reading of the word? This is John chapter 1, verses 35 through 42. The next day, again, John was standing with two of his disciples. And he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. Heavenly Father, Thank you for your word. Thank you for the grace of this day. You are a good father. And Lord Jesus, you are the beloved son in whom the father delights. And by your work and by the power of your spirit, you draw us into that same love. You draw us into that delight that the father would delight in us and that we would be able to delight in who you are, our God and our King. Would we experience that joy? Would we experience that delight today? Would you help us to re-see reality? We love you. We need you. Lord, I need you. Help me to be a help to my brothers and sisters today. Empower this preaching by your spirits. In the name of Christ that we pray. Amen. You may be seated. On the surface, it's a simple question. It's a great question. It's a, a weighty question. And it's a, it's a wonderful question. And when you get down to it, it is the question, really. And this question is the first thing that we hear on the lips of Jesus that is recorded in the Gospel of John. What are you seeking? What do you want? Short sentence, simple words, but a profound question. What do you want? So let me take us to where the question was asked, to the site of the question, to the scene of the reply. Let's go to where the wilderness meets the green reeds and the flowing water. So here, out here, in this place, this is called Bethany beyond the Jordan. Out here, there is a buzz in the air. This is east of Jerusalem. This is east of Jericho. This is where the land of Israel meets the modern-day country of Jordan. Now here, as you can see, the Jordan River cuts through the arid and brown landscape with a refreshing ribbon of green life. And this is the spot or somewhere close to this. This is the spot where there was electricity in the air, where people whispered rumors, where they told stories. They were 
telling tales of this wild-eyed, otherworldly, prophet-like figure in a rustic wardrobe, you could say. And the stories brought people here. Now, this strange and magnetic figure is John the Baptizer. I'm going to call him John the Baptizer because he's not a Baptist. He's not a Southern Baptist. He's not a Presbyterian, right? He is John the Baptizer. And he was out in this wilderness submerging people into that river, the, the Jordan River. He was preaching. He was calling people to repent, to change their mind about how they saw reality. He was readying the people for the hero who would come, the, the one that was long promised by Scripture, the one that was called the Mashiach or the Messiah. That means the one who's anointed by the Spirit of God to do the work of God. Now with John, amidst all the fiery preaching and splashing of all the baptisms, there's a crew of followers. There's a crew of apprentices. John has a crew of apprentices that are with him. By the way, this John, John the baptizer, is not John the author of the gospel. There's a lot of Johns in here, so let's delineate. This is a, a different John than the one who's writing the book. Now one day, the wild eyes of John lock on to something. Or rather, they lock on to someone. He sees Jesus here by the banks of the river, and he tells his followers, Look, look, gaze intently, see, behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Now John will go on to tell others that he saw the Holy Spirit fall on Jesus from heaven and remain on him and that Jesus is the Son of God. He's the one that all of John's preaching, all of John's words and symbols have pointed to all along. See, John was a sign. John was a living billboard and Jesus is the main attraction. Jesus is the main event. Now, all of this is the context for our passage today, which is John chapter 1, verse 35 through 42. Let's look at the, the literary design of the book of John uh, really, really briefly. We did this in the last volume of John. Let's look at it again here. So the book of John, the gospel of John, the good news of Jesus, according to John, uh, you could say is written in four big movements, four big pieces. And those pieces are the prologue, the book of signs, which we were in a lot over the last couple of months, the book of glory, and the epilogue. And these four kind of work in a circular fashion, so then you will ultimately read the book again anew in a deeper, richer way when you start it over. You go prologue, book of signs, book of glory, epilogue, and you kind of keep spiraling in, and more and more comes to you as you meditate on, on the word here. And so today we're going to be in chapter 1, which is considered the prologue. Right? You can see the star um, up there. The prologue is the seedbed out of which the whole garden of the rest of this gospel will, will grow. Everything that is in the, the gospel is, is in seed form here in John chapter 1. And here we get the first conversation with Jesus. We hear Jesus' first words. And so this series that we're in is called Conversations with Jesus. We get to eavesdrop, so to speak, on some of the most crucial, important conversations in all of history. And so today we launch into the first one. So let's get into our passage. We'll start with verse 35 and 36. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold the Lamb of God. 
So here, here he is out in this threshold place where the dry land meets the lush riverbanks. And here comes Jesus again. He had been there the day before. John had saw him and said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. Now it's the next day. Jesus comes again. And John stares at him. There's multiple words for the, for the word to, to look. Uh, so in Greek, uh, this word stares, it, it's more like stares than just look. It's um, an intense word. It's a really intense word. And so it says John intensely gazes at Jesus, like he's looking into the very depths of who he is. So he sees more than this blue-collar guy from, from Nazareth who has dust on his sandals. He sees something profound, and he needs other people to see it. He says, look, behold, this one. See that guy? That one is the Lamb of God. Now, we're going to come back to what that means later towards the end of the sermon. But what happens when the preacher says, look to these two disciples? Well, they do exactly that. They look at this Jesus. And then they begin walking. They start following after him. Verse 37 through 39, um, the two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. The two disciples heard him say this and they followed Jesus. Now, um, a couple things by way of definition here. A disciple is a learner. It can sound like a real religious term and kind of lose its meaning sometimes to us, but a disciple is, is a learner. It's an apprentice, one who follows a master, one who listens intently to the master's words, one who watches the master and watches what he does and wants to become like that master. Now, master-apprentice relationships uh, within the social structure of, of Israel at this time are, are well, well attest- attested. They were well known. The masters were called, do you know what the masters were called? Rabbis, right? It's in our text. Rabbis. And the apprentices in Hebrew were called the Talmud. Apprentices were the Talmudim. And that word in Hebrew literally means learner. The, the, the word in Greek is mathetes, which also means learner. And we call it a disciple. Now, <clears throat> these two apprentices are about to undergo a radical life change. They are about to change their masters. They are going to go from following John to following Jesus. This following Jesus is a very embodied thing. It's not just about abstract theological thoughts floating in your head, right? It's about actually turning your feet in a different direction and walking and following Jesus and being with Jesus, leaning into learning and experiencing his daily rhythms with everything with everything of who you are. Not just your thoughts, but your entire body. Now, verse 38. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher. By the way, that word rabbi comes from um, a Hebrew word, rav, which means great. Great one. Great one. Where are you staying? Where are you abiding? You could translate it that. Where are you abiding? And he said to them, come and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying and they stayed with him that day for it was about the 10th hour. It's about 4 p.m. It's 4, 4 in the afternoon. Now this is fascinating to me. Uh, at some point, you know, Jesus 
is walking along and he sees these guys like creeping back here, right? They're just kind of tailgating. And he turns around, right? He turns around. I wonder how long they were tailgating him. You know, I wonder if Jesus like just waited it out for a while, knowing that they're there, just kind of seeing how they would respond, you know, kind of whistling and waiting and humming and then turning around and be like, oh, oh, hey there, how's it going? Well, he eventually turns around and he asks them this question. But it says Jesus sees them. Jesus sees them. By the way, this whole passage is riddled with words of sight and seeing and vision. So pay attention. Maybe this week even go through the whole passage and everything that has to do with seeing, sight, or vision, circle, and you'll be amazed. This whole thing is about vision. It's, it's about seeing, right? So he sees them, and then he speaks. He, he asks, what are you seeking? What do you want? What do you want? Here is the question. And in one sense, it's totally normal because if you're out there walking around in the wilderness and you turn around and you see two guys following you, what's one of the things that you're going to say if you turn around and talk to them? What's up? What do you want? Right? It's a totally normal question, right? I mean, option B is you turn around and say, and then you run, right? You just, because there's these guys following you, right? So what do you want? Normal question, but it's a wonderful question because there's more to this question than meets the eye, right? Now, again, these are the first words of Jesus in the Gospel of John. And, and usually in Scripture, when, when there is a first conversation or the first instance of some kind of event or symbol, it, it sets the pace for everything that's to come. And so John intentionally has these words be the first words of Jesus. Because remember, the whole book of John is that we would see who Jesus truly is, that he is the Son of God and have eternal life by believing in him. So these words about what do you want and about coming and seeing are pivotal to the whole story. They're not accidental, right? They're intentional. This is the pivotal question. What do you want? What are you seeking? What is Jesus doing with this question? What is Jesus after with this question? Well, these two apprentices respond to the question with um, another question. They say, Rabbi, where are you staying? Where are you abiding? So they, they do answer his question, even though they answer it in a question form. It, it might sound to us like they're, they're not answering the question, but when you understand how the master-apprenticeship relationships work in Israel at this time, it, it begins to make sense. See, they want to be his apprentices. And what did an apprentice do? They followed the master. They were with the master. Right? They would spend time with them, eating, walking, Right? They would be with the master. So when, when they say, where are you staying, they're not just asking for his address. It's not a strange question to them. What they're saying is, where you are, I want to be. I want to walk with you. I want to eat dinner with you. So it's about four in the afternoon. It's, it's about dinner time. We want to be with you. We want to sit with you. We want to sit under your teaching. We want to be your followers. That's what they're saying when they ask this, this question. To follow a rabbi as a Talmud, as an, as an apprentice, means total commitment, total devotion to becoming like that master, to know and to understand how that master would interpret the scriptures and then live by the scriptures. And so these guys are leaving John because they're trusting John, and then 
They're going to this Jesus and say, we want to we follow you now. John has sent us to you. Okay, so again, they're not just asking about the, the, address, the address where he's staying. They don't want to know where his Airbnb is. They just want to be with him. We want to stay with you, to be with you. And Jesus says, yeah, yes. He invites them to be with him, to follow him, to stay with him. The master has just accepted them as his students. But notice how he says yes. How does he say yes? He says, come and you're going to see. Come and see. But Okay, so stop right there. What? See what? What are they going to see? That's the big question here. Come and you'll see. So come, take action, walk with me, trace out my rhythms, be, be with me. Inhabit the world as I'm going to inhabit the world. And as you take those steps of trust, you are going to see. Now we're taught something absolutely crucial about apprenticeship here. Something utterly fundamental that we all need to know as Christians. And maybe we didn't experience this truth. Maybe we didn't understand this truth. Whether we grew up in the church or not. But there's something absolutely fundamental here that we need to take deep into our bones. To be a follower of Jesus means that you are united to Jesus. An apprentice would be united to their master. There would be a relationship. So to be a follower of Jesus first means union with Jesus. We want to be with you. And there's this, there's this connection. There's this relationship. But then that relationship leads to following after and then seeing. It leads to abiding with, being with the master, being with Jesus. So he could reshape how we see the world. And then when he reshapes how we see the world, then we live in accordance with that. We obey. And this union with him leads to abiding, being with him leads to obeying what he says because we trust him more than our, ourself. And then ultimately that leads to becoming like him. Okay, that's, that's the big end game is to become like Jesus. So these Disciples are going to see how Jesus lives and loves. They're going to see how he sees the world. They're going to see how he inhabits the world. And they are going to grow in his likeness. He's inviting them to come and see his way, to know how he operates. You know, truth isn't just cold content. There's a way. There's a posture of being in this world. And, and we need to see that in Jesus, not just have data and facts, but to know the way of love, to know the way of Christ. And that's what he's inviting them into. So he's inviting them in to, to come and see his way, to see how he operates in this world. And it's not just the what of the truth, it's the way of the truth. So to be an apprentice of Jesus is to have our imagination reshaped to see the world how Jesus sees the world. And how we see the world shapes how we live in the world. So there's more on that, which we will come to here in a little bit, but let's continue with our verses. Verse 40, uh, 40 through 42. It says, One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We found the Messiah. And that word Messiah means Christ or anointed one. He brought him to Jesus, and Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. 
Okay, a couple things here. Andrew is one of the first two disciples who follows Jesus here in the account. Um, the other one, who's not explicitly named, is, is commonly thought to be, be John. It makes sense to me that it, it is John. He never really refers to himself. So we have Andrew and John here. Now Andrew is going to go and call his, his brother. So these two go with Jesus. It's about four in the afternoon. They're going to spend the rest of the evening talking with Jesus, eating with Jesus, being with Jesus. And notice what happens. One of them, Andrew, he goes and tells someone about Jesus, right? He goes and tells his brother, Simon. So he goes up to Simon, fisherman, and he says, We found the one. We found the one that we've been waiting for. The Messiah is here. Come and see. Come and see. So he brings Peter to come and see. Now, remember how we talked about this passage as being loaded with seeing and looking words, right? So here it is again. When Jesus meets the Simon, he uses, the, John, the author, uses the same word that he uses for John looking at Jesus. Jesus stares at Peter. like He looks into him. He's not just looking at some random guy. He's looking into the very soul of Peter with this long gaze. In, in blepo or in blepsis is, is, the, is the fun word in Greek. He sees him and he sees who he's going to become. And he says, you're Simon. That's the Hebrew word, uh, Shimon, uh, one who listens. You're, you're, you're Simon. But you're going to become Cephas, which is an Aramaic word for rock. And then we also get the, the Greek translation, or Peter. So his name's Simon. He's one way, but Jesus says, you're going to be the rock. So we know, we know Peter if we've read the scriptures. He's up and down. He's like a roller coaster. He's unstable. He's full of emotion going this way and that. But he's going to be the rock. Right? The rock. So two things here that I think we should take notice of. So the first one is this. Apprentices of Jesus are called to come and see. And to call others to come and see. Apprentices of Jesus are called to come and see. To come and see Jesus. And to call others to come and see. Who will in turn call others to come and see. Who will in turn call others to come and see. So Jesus. So, so, so see what happens right away. How Andrew starts to image or to imitate Jesus. Jesus sees these two. And they're following after him. And he says come and see. And then what does Andrew go and do? He goes and finds someone else, and he says, come and see. Andrew is already following in the footsteps of Jesus, doing exactly what Jesus did. So are we a come and see people? Are we a people who say, come and see this Jesus. Come and see the way he's reshaped my life. Come and see the world the way Jesus sees the world. Come and reimagine reality. You know, uh, Bonhoeffer, uh, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, has this really wonderful little thing. He, he says, um, I was with um, Pastor Laren this, this last week, and we were talking about Bonhoeffer as per, as per usual. And <laughs> if you know Laren, you know Bonhoeffer is going to pop up. Um, and he reminded me of the quote where, where, where Dietrich said, uh, the body of Christ takes up space in this world. And that body of Christ in this world is the church. 
And we are to be a come and see people to say, come and see the living Christ, his body in this world. Come and see. The second thing that I think we should pull out of this here is apprenticeship is an embodied way of life through which Jesus transforms us into his likeness. Apprenticeship to Jesus is an embodied way of life through which Jesus transforms us into his likeness. Right? We've already seen that Andrew has already gone within a few verses to do what Jesus just did. He's following the footsteps of his master. He's inviting others to come and see. But we see this here with Peter, right? He sees Peter. And Jesus is going to reshape how Simon sees the world and change him from Simon into Cephas or, or to Peter. This unstable and unreliable Peter will be a rock. He will be a shepherd. So to be an apprentice means you're in process. It means you are something, but it also means you shall be something else, right? He says, you are this, Peter, but you shall be this. And what's the difference between the you are and the you shall? It's Jesus. He's transforming us. He's making us into who we truly are to be truly human. Okay, so back to the two things we hear Jesus say in this passage, now that we've pulled out kind of those two um, preliminary application points here. Back to the first two things Jesus says. First, what do you want? What do you want? See, he, he isn't simply inquiring about what they're doing back there, you know, tailgating him. He's getting them to pay attention to their souls. He's getting them to attune to what's inside of their chests. What is it that motivates you? What is it that drives you? What is the want beneath your want? What is the desire behind your desire? He's probing into their innermost being. Who are they really? How do they see the world? What do they think the good life is? What do they think is worth chasing after and dying for and sacrificing for and working for? How do they see this world? What is the want really that's behind their want? This past week, this question was in the, the, um, the Q's and Q's. What do you want? And it prompted a really wonderful conversation in, in the comm group that I'm in. So I'm going to embarrass someone in my comm group here. Um, but we got in this really awesome conversation, and Cassidy said something really, really cool when we started talking about this. So what, what, do, you, what do you want? And, and she wisely said, you know, well, you need to just keep asking the question because you'll probably say something, but then there's a deeper want, and then a deeper want, and then a deeper want. And then when you get to the backstop, really, what do we all want? I like that answer. What do we want? We want to be known. We want to be loved. We want to be fully known. I don't want to be fully loved and accepted. Or if you want to use more philosophical language, we want to be um, drawn into the transcendentals, the, the, the good, the beautiful, and the true. We want to be on the inside of what's good. We want to be on the inside of what's beautiful. We want to be on the inside of what's true. We want to be known and we want to be loved. We want a face to look at us and light up and say, I delight in you. It's what babies crave. It's why they want to see their parents' face. It's what teenagers crave. It's what a husband or a wife craves. To look into the face of the other and see their face light up and say, I delight in you. And we crave that because we were wired for that. Because we were created to be before the face of God. And shine back his reflection. And live in delight. Christianity is the opposite of boring. 
It is full of joy and hope and, and delight. That is what we are called into. Okay. That's what he is really getting at with this question. Like, what's in the deepest part of your heart? Why are you walking after me? Why are you at church this morning? Why are you in your community group? Why are you reading the Bible? Are you looking for some quick kind of medication, some kind of quick fix to cover up the pain? Or are you in it because of some legalistic posture that was put into your soul and you're, and you're bent by it because that's how mom and dad did it and this is just the way you do things? Or are you after knowing God face to face? What are you after? What do you want? Being an apprentice of Jesus has to do with aiming our innermost being at Jesus and delighting in him. It's not sin management. It's not simply following the rules. It's having Jesus be the joy that we are after, the delight that we seek. Second, to be an apprentice of Jesus is to be on a journey of re-seeing reality and living in accordance with that reality. How we see is then how we live. I think um, it was Dr. Eckman, who's part of our congregation, who I first heard say that how we see is how we live, and that captivated my imagination. Another way to say it is how we imagine the world is how we inhabit this world. We live out of how we think the world operates. That's not too, too difficult to understand. So Jesus invites Andrew and John and Peter into a journey of re-seeing the world. He's calling them back to reality, back out of the insanity and distortions that the cultural narratives have, have put within us and that come out of us, right? He's not calling us to, again, sin, sin management or to mere behavior modification, but calling us to a vision of what life is really like. And our vision then shapes how we take action in this world. This is what Jesus is all about. How we see is how we live. So what do you want? What do you want? How do you see and therefore live? If you're an apprentice of Jesus, he will be reworking what you want. He will renew your priorities. He will mess with your order of desires. He moves into your home. He starts moving everything around. That's how it works. He will rework what you value. He will help you to re-see what is actually the good life and what are the broken narratives that we've been fed. In other words, he's going to give you a better story to live by. He will give you the true narrative of the world as this transforming power gets in you. Now, here, here's, the, here's the deal, though, with all this. All of this is more than an ordinary teacher could do. All of this is more than an ordinary teacher could do. All of this is more than the best teacher who ever lived or will ever live could do, aside from Jesus. So, Let's make sure we do justice to our text because the text tells us ultimately what these apprentices are going to come and see. Our text tells us what they're going to come and see. John tells them exactly what they are going to see. Remember, John says, behold, look. He's telling them what they are to see. What, and what does he tell them to look at? Look, behold, the Lamb of God. So in verse 36, he says, behold the Lamb of God. But before that, which we didn't read in verse 29, here's what it says. 
The next day he saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So two days back to back he says that. John calls Jesus the Lamb of God, but the apprentices call him Rabbi. That's significant. They call him Rabbi. They would need to see him as so much more than a great teacher. We need to see Jesus as so much more than a great teacher. When John says, behold the lamb, he's not saying, here's a great teacher. No, no, his words are just, they're epic. They're massive. They have a backstory. He says, behold the lamb of God. Here is the one who saves the world. I need more than a teacher. You need more than a teacher. We need more than new thoughts. We need a new heart, right? So look, here's the deal. The, the whole Old Testament can be summed up in one question. Okay? It can be summed up in a lot of different questions, but I'm going to give it a go. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? The majority of the Old Testament passages that mention lamb refer to sacrifice. 85 out of 95 of those references to lambs refer to sacrifice. So rewind the tape with me. For the last bit of the sermon, we're going to rewind the tape. We're going to go back in the story. Genesis 3. Mankind sins. There's a relationship break between Adam and Eve and God and Adam and Eve. And God comes in and they're naked and they're ashamed. And what does God do? Clothes them. What does he clothe them with? Animal skin, sacrifice, sin, sacrifice, union, covering of shame. It's all right there, right in the beginning. Chapter 4, Cain, Abel. What's the first uh, murder over? Worship, sacrifice. Abel sacrifices from his, his livestock. An animal is killed. Okay, on the story rolls. Abraham, Isaac, in Genesis 22, Abraham takes his son Isaac up a mountain to sacrifice him, which is just mind-blowing because this is the son of promise that God gave them in a miraculous way. And this is the, the son through whom all these nations and all these people are going to come, the son of promise, and yet God says, go sacrifice him up on the mountain. He goes to take him up on the mountain. He goes to sacrifice him. The kid carrying the wood on his back up the mountain. And somewhere along the journey up to the top of that hill, Isaac goes, where's the lamb? Oh, crud. <laughs> like, where's the lamb? Where's the sacrifice? And what, is, what does dad say? God will provide. God will, God, if that doesn't give us goosebumps to hear that. God will provide the sacrifice. And then he, he spares Isaac's life because there's a ram caught in a thicket. But there's no lamb yet. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? On and on through all the books of the Old Testament. Where's the lamb? Where's the lamb? In Exodus, as a nation, Israel began its history by putting lamb's blood on its doorposts and lentils. The angel of death was coming over Egypt and the firstborn in each household was going to die. But the houses that had the lamb's blood on it, they were passed over and the firstborn would live instead of die. This was called the Passover and was celebrated for centuries. 
In Exodus and Leviticus, when God tells them to build the tabernacle, the place where God will meet with his people, the priest will sacrifice the lamb in the morning and the evening every day. For hundreds and hundreds of years, Jews brought lambs to the temple as sacrifices for their sins. They kept coming back year after year because no lamb, no animal could take away all their sins. Later, Isaiah, the prophet, foresaw the Messiah's sacrifice. He saw the Messiah as a suffering servant in Isaiah 53. This this one who would come to save didn't come rolling in on a tank. He came walking in like a spotless lamb. He was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth. He was led as a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. And he was slaughtered. For our our healing, he was wounded that we might be made whole. Isaiah 53. Brilliant chapter. Read it if you have the time this week. Make the time this week. All the sacrificial lambs offered in the Old Testament point to Jesus. Where is the lamb? Where is the lamb? Genesis, where is the lamb? Exodus, where is the lamb? Leviticus, where is the lamb? Numbers, where is the lamb? Deuteronomy, where is the lamb? Through all the books. All the way to the end, into Malachi, end of Second Chronicles. Where's the lamb? Dot, 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 400 years of silence. John the Baptist steps on the scene as their bridge between the Old Testament and the New Testament says, Behold the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So John tells them what they will see if they go and follow Jesus ultimately. He tells them what will reshape their vision of reality. What will help them to see that they're a bunch of sinners just like us who have messed things up, not gotten things right, offended God, offended each other, and need a covering for their sin. They need to be washed. Does anybody in here need to be washed and be made clean? From what you did 15 years ago? From what you did 15 minutes ago? We need to be washed. We need to be made clean. He tells them, as apprentices of Jesus, what they will eventually see that will reshape their entire reality. It is the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. So look at the one who is more than a teacher. This is all wrapped up in what John is saying. Look at the one who's more than a teacher. Look at the one who can save us from our sins. Look at the one who will die for you in your place. Look at the one who is righteous and innocent. Look at the one who is the true Passover lamb whose blood causes death to pass over us. Look at the one whose mercy meets us in the cross. Look at the one whose grace can reshape how we see the world. Look at the one whose grace can reshape our hearts so that we can live and love in this world as he has lived and loved. Look at the anointed one who shares his spirit with us that we might become like him. Look at the one who looks at us and calls us the beloved of God. So let me close with these two questions before our reflection today. Number one, it's not going to surprise you. What do you want? What do you want? Do you want a great teacher to feed you some ideas that just give you a mental high? Do you want a personal theological assistant, a rabbi yes man? Do you want a controllable Jesus who who won't throw any surprises or any curves at you? Do you want a butler Jesus, a, a vending machine Jesus? Do you want a puppet Jesus who's made 
in your image? Do you want a Jesus who will tell you what you want to hear but never tell it like it is? Or do you want a master Jesus who is the Lamb of God that takes away your sin, changes your heart, renews and washes your mind, and teaches you to walk in his way? What do you want? What are you seeking? Why are we here? Come and follow Jesus and see that he is your salvation. And second, second question here, are we a come and see people? Is that our mentality? See, the church is to be a come and see people. Come and see Jesus. He's alive. He's in this world and he's moving. Come and see how Jesus took me a sinner, to make me a recovering sinner, now a saint in him, living by his love. Come and see what he's doing. A, a bunch of messed up people like us, who look like we have it all cleaned up on Sunday mornings, but come and see how he's helping us reconcile through the garbage of COVID and the, the politicalization of everything and, and, and ask for forgiveness and lay down our pride. Come and see. Come and see a bunch of people who might have a hard time lifting their hand to praise the king because is it socially acceptable? Will people think I'm, I'm silly? But, but do it anyway because he's worthy of all our glory. Come see some families that are rewiring their weeks, that are repenting of being selfish moms and selfish dads and finding ways to actually disciple their kids and not just shop it out to someone else and see what it's costing them and see how it's bringing joy and delight to their souls. Come and see. How will you come and see people? Are we inviting people into our lives to come and see how Jesus is our rabbi, our great one, and our redeemer, the lamb who was slain, that our sins would be washed away? And here's a scary question. What are we inviting people to come and see when we invite them to come and see? <laughs> Let that form your days. Come and see. Would you say that by, with me, by the way? Come and see. Come and see. Let's say it one more time. Come and see. So, so we can say it. Will we say it? Dare I put these two questions together as I close? Do we want to be a come and see people? Do we want to be a come and see church? What do you want? What do you want? Heavenly Father, help us to want to want you. <laughs> Turn our desires that are bent and turned on all sorts of things to you. Help us to want to see Jesus more clearly. Help us to want to grow in our trust in you. Turn our feet onto the path of your way that we would follow hard after you and by your grace you would shape how we reimagine this world that we would inhabit in a way that would honor you and that would be loving and ultimately good for all those around us. We love you. Thank you for your holy word. It's amazing. In the name of Christ we pray. Amen.